LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Ben Reynolds, who joins us to discuss his book, The Coming Revolution, Capitalism in the 21st Century. Radical advances in automation, robotics and computer technology have thrown millions out of work and will only continue to do so in the years to come. At the same time, cheap, individually accessible machines will wrestle for primacy with both advanced, highly automated factories and sweatshops alike, ultimately eroding the dominance of industrial production. Economic growth is slowing down and it is not going to speed up again. The pressures fueling today's global unrest will not go away and are only going to get worse as wages stagnate, solid employment becomes harder to find and cuts to social benefits continue. Competing radical and reactionary ideologies will clash as political consensus crumbles and the world searches for answers to these challenges. In its opening decades, the 21st will be a century of war and revolution. By the end of the 21st century, capitalism may be consigned to the history books. Despite the seeming darkness of our era, our future is filled with incredible possibilities. A world of freedom, beauty and abundance, where poverty and tyranny are merely distant memories for our grandchildren, is possible. Hello and welcome Ben and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Happy to be here. Today Ben, we're going to be talking about your book, The Coming Revolution, Capitalism in the 21st century. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background, your work. So yeah, I've been working in um, different forms of activism and research, um, some of it dealing with economics, others with foreign policy and international relations for about five years now. Um, I got interested in the book topic all the way back when I was an undergraduate student, and it sort of took a long time to develop um, the amount of research that kind of allowed me to come to some of the conclusions that I presented in the book. Now, I'm wondering if you studied economics formally as part of your degree or otherwise. <clears throat> you can tell us about that in a second, but basically I'm curious as to how you came to the topic as a subject of interest, because for many people it's very dry subject, very mysterious. They don't fully understand the direct impacts on their daily lives. It's something they hear people prattling on about in news bulletins. Now, I did study economics, not at degree level, and it mm -hmm. was the study of formal conventional economics and my constant reaction to what I was being told in the classroom, like, this doesn't make any sense. What are they talking about? That led me to look further into it. There's a reason that they call it the dismal science. Yeah. Uh, so my conventional economics qualification I had is just useless because it assumes all sorts of things 
about the world that are either not true or they're subject to change. And it doesn't take those into account. And one of the key things that it assumes, of course, is that people are rational when it comes mm-hmm. to their behavior. So, yeah, just tell us about how you came to the subject and what took you off on the sort of radical tangent. So I did get a chance to study economics uh, in in school. It was mostly at the level of the sort of grand theories of economics. So we went through the, like, you know, the big historical writers, Adam Smith, and of course, Marx and Ricardo and Marshall and all these guys. Um, I think one of the things that was interesting is I was already kind of sort of somewhat uh, critical and, and, and interested in this stuff, but there was very much an open admission from uh, the professor I was taking these courses with um, at the time, even though this guy was, you know, he's pretty much like a standard um, conservative economist, but he was like, look, I mean, the stuff that we think we're using right now to understand how the economy is working isn't working at all. And you can tell that people don't really know what's going on. So that this is very much like an open time for people who are proposing new theories, because again, we have no idea basically what's, what the hell is going on. Um, but the thing is, I didn't really get into the book, uh, thinking about this through like a sort of like pure economic lens. I, the thing that sort of first keyed me onto this was I was thinking, okay, like how is a computer similar to like a printing press? Like if we think about all of the ways that the invention of the printing press and Gutenberg's press sort of revolutionized, uh, the world that we live in, and we understand that the computer can basically do similar sorts of things and a variety of new and very different and exciting things we can sort of get a like really embryonic idea of where we're headed and just sort of running with that idea kind of took me into this whole world of like having to understand uh, global economics and how capitalism works and all this stuff. But it really started from like a very small practical question. Yes, exactly. I don't, this isn't really a conversation about economics per se. There's, yeah. you, you just touched upon one of the central ideas behind the book. And we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. Um, mm-hmm. I was just introducing it in talking about economics because it's the, as you mentioned a moment ago, it's the source of so much um, mystification. I mean, yeah. there's an economic dimension to so many of the social, political, environmental problems that we're experiencing mm-hmm. at the moment globally. Uh, but there's so much confusion seemingly, even amongst professionals in the media. Things are based, again, as you alluded to, on models that no longer work or never really worked in the first place. And mm-hmm. so many talking heads in the media going, but this, we don't understand these figures, you know, these employment figures, you know, whatever it is, these uh, tax figures, you know, all these different things. And it, it, this is really strange. And I don't know about you, but I find myself saying, no, it's not. This is entirely to be expected. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're just operating on some of these false premises. Yeah, I think I think the fundamental problem with the way that mainstream economics works and it, the reality is that it works the way it does because the discipline is justifying the way that our society society current work currently yes. works so yes. you have to you have to have an explanation that says if you only did things in all of these essentially really right-wing and reactionary ways everything would work fine um even though that's obviously not the case the essentially what's going on and it getting away from the more like nitty gritty things is that their theory, the mainstream theory is that capitalism is a system that's fundamentally stable and that when it kind of uh, has little shocks that make it diverge from that stability, it will sort of self right itself and bring itself back into stability. And that is the fundamentally wrong assumption uh, that's guiding so much of our bad economic theory. And the thing is that people who are doing actual economic policy, like people in governments and central banks, don't I don't think they really actually 
use these theories anymore. Um, and one thing that I've actually sort of learned recently is that uh, to a certain degree, even people who are at the very highest levels of uh, the state, there's not they don't really understand how these things work either. There's this famous uh, event back in the 80s where this guy, Paul Volcker, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, instituted this shock, basically trying to bring inflation into check um, at the end of the 70s. Uh, there's a quote of him at the time before he did this, which he was subsequently hailed as like a genius who knew what he was doing. He said, we have no idea what's going to happen. So we're just going to try this and see if this sticks, basically. And I think to a large extent, that's pro pretty much what's happening right now. Absolutely. And you talk about the 80s. We had uh, not quite that far back, but you talked about capitalism being viewed as this system that's inherently stable. And if you do mm -hmm. X, then Y will follow. Uh, you'll recall... Francis Fukuyama's end of history, that ridiculous idea, yeah. uh, to, to my mind, and that, you know, neoliberal capitalism would cover the face of the earth. And when that happened, as you, you say, it would be milk and honey from then on. St you know, it's, it was this fundamentally yeah. uh, stable system that would just um, sustain itself. Yeah. And you know, the, interestingly enough, uh, Fukuyama actually relatively recently admitted likewise. He said, look, I was completely wrong. Um, I mean, obviously at this point, you know, we're clearly not headed towards a, a world of increasing stability and prosperity for all. Um, but no, he actually had the sort of courage to go back and say, look, I was completely wrong. Um, you know, don't believe this stuff anymore. But yes, he was sort of like a perfect emblem of like that kind of way of thinking. And I think him sort of capitulating and saying, look, I mean, this book, which is sort of like the the mission statement of the 1990s isn't working anymore uh, is is a pretty important symbol of like what's going on right now. Exactly, exactly. So let's turn to, uh, for people getting into your book, the first mm -hmm. big idea that's presented is this idea of distributed production. Yeah. You talk about capitalism and industrialism as being kind of, can be two sides of the same coin, but there's different types of coins. You, you, you can have industrialism without it being in a, within a capitalist system obviously there was a, you know industrialism mm -hmm. in communist uh, russia the soviet union mm -hmm. um so let's talk about distributed production and the potential there some of the trends that you write about and mm -hmm. where you see that going so yeah i think i think the best way to start is like i said sort of thinking about what happened when the printing press was invented and what this meant for our world basically the printing press you know before the press, books were literally written out by hand. There were like an army of scribes and scholars who would have to hand copy and illustrate books. It was extremely expensive. Um, very few people in society read or could even could read at all. Um, the printing press basically allows you to use this amazing machine to make many, many copies of the same thing. Uh, it drives down costs incredibly so that, you know, you have the Protestant Reformation where... Uh, people actually have direct access to books and texts for the first time, and they can read these books for themselves, and there's a point to literacy, which is like, you know, to become closer to God and the sort of Protestant ethos. But basically what the printing press shows is, okay, here's a new way of making things and of doing things that's going to spread eventually, and it took a very long time for that to actually happen. So the printing press is basically the first form of kind of mass production. You only start to see that happen with clothing and textiles. Uh, in the late 1700s, really, and even then, it's very, very uh, simple, simple kinds of stuff going on. Nowadays, obviously, we know, like, we're living in a world with 
highly automated car factories and industrial robotics. So we've seen where exactly this sort of way of producing things goes. Distributed production is really interesting because what you have with the rise of computers is that you can do the exact same things as you can do with a printing press. You can create a text, copy it as many times as you like, and distribute it basically across the entire world through the internet. But the price of doing that has gone down radically. And not just that, printing presses are really, really expensive. If you're an ordinary person, you cannot own or access a printing press. And from the very second that you have the world of the printing press, you have this uh, big divergence between the people who actually own the printing presses and the journeymen who work them. You need a mass market to consume all these products. Uh, what we've seen with media and computers and the internet is a sort of real reversal of that kind of dynamic. I can get on the internet, write a blog, and hypothetically have thousands if not millions of people reading it and it costs me next to nil. And the cost to the consumer is next to nil. So this is the idea of distributed production, is that the idea is you can have people producing these products for themselves, for other people, directly for those other people's use in their own homes. And the thing that's very interesting is I think this is actually going to spread beyond just media. Exactly. And that's uh, a lot of people see it restricted to that, um, mm -hmm. you know, because there's the idea that, uh, well, you know, yeah, so many things have gone online, but there's a limit to what you can do online. Uh, you know, you can't have a coffee online, you can't get your hair cut online, but I think there's a lot more room for growth in this area as you lay out in the book than people perhaps imagine. Uh, certainly 3D printing is something that you discuss in the book and most articles I read about that is all about, well, yeah, but we can only do this, it only goes so far about limitations, but I think there's, there's huge potential there. Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, you just, uh, so I think, I think sometimes we can get sucked into thinking, you know, I, I see this revolutionary thing happening, so it's going to be here next year. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not that's not going to happen. But if you look at what's been happening, the technologies of 3D printing have been steadily getting better. They've been steadily getting cheaper. They're working with new materials. You know, you can print stuff in plastic and metal, wood composites. Um, we're heading towards a world where, at some point, the ordinary consumer would be able to buy a printer that can work with multiple different kinds of materials and print pretty sophisticated, durable stuff. Um, you know, if you can print a mug in your own home just for the cost of the materials effectively in the printer, there's a certain point at which you're going to be able to compete and directly produce these things for your own need rather than having to buy them at a store where they've been shipped from a factory. Um, and this sort of embryonic battle that we've seen over like intellectual property rights and people printing stuff that's sort of pirated from existing industrial designs, that's going to get much, much more important because you're going to have this emerging challenge just like the internet has sort of essentially permanently destroyed the revenues of industries like music and print media. Um, that's going to happen, I think, as that technology expands with real goods as well. Yeah, I mean, I've spent most of my decades of life working within two industries, music and media, and mm -hmm. for a, a long time where they overlap. And I saw both of the those decimated in terms of their traditional model of uh, generating income. And uh, they've been forced to adapt. We're very slow to do so, as I'm sure you're aware, and are still reeling and still trying to get back up again and see. And the result has been, in many ways, you know, much, much smaller industries in, in some ways. You know, lots of new outgrowths, ways of doing things. But, like, for example, a number of full-time 
journalists, the number of professional musicians greatly changed compared to, you know, the halcyon days of 70s and 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's, I think the thing that's really striking, especially about, you know, those two industries in particular is you, you look and what you see is just a straight up, uh, long-term decline in the amount of money that these industries are, are making. And some, there's some question of like, okay, with Spotify and this new environment, like, will the music industry be able to stabilize and find its footing in a, in a world with the internet where you can share music for free? Um, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but I think what this shows is that essentially for like an ordinary person, the ability to access all of the things that you could want to access, whether it's books or music, essentially for next to no cost, um, in absolute abundance is great. You know, we have access to more music, to more knowledge, uh, than we ever possibly could have before the invention of these things, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing for capitalism. And that, I think, is the real tension. Exactly. Oh, yeah, and we're, we're listening to more songs and reading more articles than ever. And, yeah. uh, oh, but a lot of that maybe is to do with the fact that they're free, but it's not just free. As you mentioned, it's because they're available. We can access them easily, readily. And yeah, so there's enormous consequences of these developments for profits, you know, corporate profits, uh, mm -hmm. for economic growth, uh, for, for nations and economic blocks, for, mm -hmm. um, taxation. I'm about to do an interview based just around this idea, you know, with like, what are nation states going to do? Is there tax income dwindles and dwindles as a result of some of these developments? But we already have mobile borderless sort of kind of money and finance again much to the chagrin of of many governments as well th th these trends are only going to continue mm -hmm. i think there's there's no doubt in my mind that those sorts of issues are going to continue to be a huge problem um you know at the same time that you have for for now uh, sort of increasing barriers to like trade even in ordinary goods and especially to people being able to move freely where they want and migrate where they want to migrate you know, there still is no real barrier to capital. Um, it's possible that if there were some pretty extreme geopolitical tension, you could see that happen again. But for now, yeah, you essentially have countries competing with each other to lower taxes as much as possible, uh, on top of the fact that it's very difficult to tax a lot of these new industries effectively. Um, yeah, it's a serious problem. I think there's a sort of two-sided thing here where on the one hand you have capitalism is facing a lot of challenges and, and crises simultaneously but at the same time even as it's facing these crises it seems in many ways to be getting stronger and stronger so your company your mega companies your amazons your googles um are still incredibly powerful even though the health of the system as a whole is not very good uh looking forward and that's kind of an interesting tension to think about but those are perfect examples of companies that are doing things differently. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they're not on the high streets. Um, they're not reliant on, you know, this commercial, expensive commercial property. Um, mm -hmm. they're cutting out so many of the costs in the chain, you know, from manufacturer to the final user. And they're using this mobility of capital to position themselves for, you know, in terms of profits and tax strategically a lot of people get very angry about this but they're doing it within the law in whatever territory they find themselves so yeah those companies yeah massive and if you look at their market capitalizations compared to other big companies making material things in 
one fixed location with a lot of fixed costs, you know, and uh, high costs of, of uh, doing business. You know, these these companies, you know, can have a few thousand employees, you know, sort of Amazon, not Amazon, because they employ a lot of people uh, yeah. working with material goods. But, you know, at Google, for example, you look at the total number of employees, Google, their market cap, their profit and their turnover and everything else, and compare it to, you know, the massive uh, automotive companies, for example, or other manufacturing, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, they've overtaken them. So that in itself tells its own story. Yeah, and I think the second side of the story is, you know, on the one hand, you have distributed production, which is kind of going to emerge as a really an challenge to a sort of industrial way of producing things and, and mass producing goods. But on the other hand, you have just regular old mass production and, and other kinds of production becoming more and more efficient. Um, you know, the when I started working on the book, there per, there perhaps was a lot more skepticism about, okay, automation in the future. Like, is it's it's going to create as many jobs as it gets rid of, yada, yada, yada. By now in 2019, I think people have grown a lot more uh, wary, rightfully so, about automation. I think the thing that links these two things together is that in both cases, you have the development of increasingly powerful machines and tools uh, decreasing the demand for human labor. And that is actually not just a challenge for ordinary working people um, who are trying to make ends meet, but it's also a challenge for capitalism. Because any time that this sort of happens in the history of capitalism, you see the emergence of these massive crises, kind of like the one that we saw in 2008, the one we saw during the Depression, and I think the one that we're headed into relatively soon. Yeah, well, one dimension of that that I pay particularly close attention to um, are the consequences of this uh, contraction in many areas for the consequences for wages, you know, and employment mm-hmm. levels. And I sometimes sum it up as when Walmart employees can no longer afford to shop at Walmart. You know, you can, the, yeah. the conventional um, industries, they can cut and they can, you know, they can cut employee numbers, they can cut um, wages, they can mm-hmm. cut all sorts of costs, but who's going to be buying these products, you know, at their prices, you know, and from their stores? This lack of security and predictability in employment uh, is making things very, very dicey for, for millions of people. At the moment, so but it's kind of something that we have to go through. If you know, it's a process that has to be gone through, doesn't it? Really, Contra- contraction in some areas and expansion in others. I think I think we do have to go through a transition in so many different ways. I mean, even stepping back from all of the stuff about automation and the internet and distributed production, just based on trying to make our economy sustainable and, and livable for the next century. Obviously, we need a massive transition. The problem is that the way that the transition is handled now. There's no real planning whatsoever to provide for people who have been displaced. And the benefits of the transition accrue to a tiny and shrinking pool of people. Um, it doesn't, really doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if you're living in a world where, uh, every year you can produce more stuff with less work, that should be a great thing for ordinary people. And the sort of irony is that it isn't. Um, the people who are losing their jobs because of this or are having trouble finding work because demand for employment is not rising as much as they would hope, even in an economy in the U.S. where supposedly unemployment is as low as it's ever been. I mean, I myself am a, a precariously employed free, freelancer, um, you know, no health care, et cetera, et cetera. There is another way of doing things. Uh, it's just doing it within a system that's based on making private profits is not possible. Yes, well, you touched upon something there, um, a subject close to my heart because of 
um, you know, we're different generations, but I grew up at the tail end of an era when there was a lot of talk about the promise of automated liberation in future you know, three-day weeks, and we'd be sitting around in the park reading poetry and drinking wine while the machines did all the work. <laughs> and yeah. it really hasn't panned out like that. You have people working three jobs and middle class being eroded and mm-hmm. family households uh, having both parents working because in order to have a basic standard of living, uh, the sort of mm-hmm. standard of living that could easily have been achieved in the 1970s by the, uh, the cliched nuclear family, you know, of dad going out to work and mom yeah. stays home and raises the kids. They'd have a car, they'd have a couple of holidays a year, they'd have air conditioning, mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, blenders, fridges, all the, all these other white goods and everything else. And the Jetsons future that they talked about in the 19 future, mm-hmm. in the 1950s, never mind that the, the technology not really panning out along those mm-hmm. lines. But I, I think that's where a lot of the mystification comes from in the media. It's like, how mm-hmm. come we've got all these technological benefits, all mm-hmm. these time and labor saving things, and yet people are being pushed harder and harder. And a lot of the essentials of life, uh, like housing, for example, are getting more expensive. You know, that, yeah. I think that's a big paradox um, in, for, uh, for a lot of people. Again, and if you use all the conventional models, of course, it, you, you're not going to be able to get to the bottom of that. Mm. So I think what's going on, you know, to step back, and, and this is sort of why I kind of ended up in the book, sort of taking a broader, having to take a sort of broader view of what's going on with capitalism is, like I was talking about, when you have so much money that's been invested in all of this productive capacity and technology, at a certain point, it becomes less and less profitable for the people who have the money, the capitalists, the banks, to keep investing in these areas. And competition intensifies because there's only so much that uh, the markets can can bear in terms of the stuff that's being produced. What ends up happening is that even though uh, things we're, we actually have the productive technology to actually decrease the amount of time that people should be working and pay higher wages, people working longer hours for lower wages supports the profits that are being lost otherwise through this competition, through this continued investment. And people also having their money then taken away after the fact by increasing rent costs or in the US, um, maybe to a lesser extent in the UK, increasing healthcare and other cost of living is again another way of supporting those private profits of a small group of people uh, when the rest of the system is essentially kind of having this long-term decline in how much money the capitalists can expect to make uh, with new investment. So you could have a world where we did have this sort of, you know, maybe not exactly a Jetsons future because you hope that the surface planet hadn't been destroyed by nuclear war, but a Jetsons future in, in the sense that, you know, we're working three or four days a week. Those days were pretty productive, but otherwise we have lots of time to spend with our friends and family and do what we want. It's just you can't also support the massive private profits of a few large banks in the financial system while doing so. Yes, exactly. And the, the issue at the minute uh, regarding that is, is very much, I think it's beginning to bubble to the surface. Uh, people are beginning to use some of the terms you just did about massive private profits and concentration of wealth. And it's, that, you know, the system's kind of, even if it's going to like implode, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of automatically does that, if you see what I mean. I, I've, yeah. I've listened to extremely wealthy people, billionaires in the media, just saying, I should pay more tax. I'm giving mm-hmm. my, I'm giving a lot of my money away at a rate of knots. 
But it's almost like something's been set in train, just like an automated system that capital generates capital and mm-hmm. capital is also taxed less than, than income, for example. So the, the whole system is kind of just playing out as you would expect, you know, like a, like a clockwork mechanism. Yeah. 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 And I mean, this is sort of the big. Uh, thing, I, you know, we have these conversations and we've been having these conversations now for a long time. I think really since 2008, for those of us who are on the younger side and don't have the benefit of having a, as much of a historical memory, but there's been these conversations about, okay, we need something different. We need something different. The big step is, uh, taking that decision collectively as a, as a group of people to decide to make that change in our society. Um, and that's not just, going out and voting every four or five years. It's a, it's about taking an active role in trying to say, like make connections with the people who we live with and work with and say, look, there's a better way of doing things and we should be willing to, to work for that. If not just for ourselves, but for our children to actually have a, a world that's worth living in. Um, in terms of the mechanism that keeping going, and sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Uh, what we're about to see is a pretty substantial jam in that mechanism. Um, a lot of the stuff that happened prior to 2008 with the buildup of unsustainable junk debt um, is happening right now in a different sector. A lot of it is in the world of corporate bonds, where you have a lot of companies that are running essentially off of really cheap credit, but aren't making any money um, and basically depend on the ability to constantly refinance their debt at these rock bottom rates. This is something where just like prior to 2008, you've had massive investment and speculation from American and European banks in this industry. Um, and as soon as there's like a bit of a shock to that lending and people can't refinance, just in the way that when people stopped being able to refinance their mortgages in 2007, uh, it sort of started this cascade of, of this junk debt causing massive problems. Um, the same thing is pretty much going to happen with the global financial system. And so that is not really a question of whether, but a question of when. And that's going to really change things, I think, for what people at the top are doing in, in order to sort of keep capitalism running. Yeah, well, 2007, 2008, that crisis is kind of mm-hmm. o- is ongoing. Um, yeah. Again, a lot of the media, um, a lot of commentators, economists, whatever it happens to be, talk about it as, you know, has it an historical event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know when they quite thought it kind of all sorted itself out but it's kind of it happened back then and a lot of the puzzlement that i spoke about earlier stems from this fact that they think that that's somehow been wrapped up and of course if you look at some of the figures some of the bubbles that blew up just before all of that went Mm -hmm. went south the figures are actually more alarming you know more worrying they're very much like you know when they talk about um environmental action on climate change for example and then you look at you know um carbon emissions being higher year on year, despite the fact of these pledges to cut them. So in the economic sphere, the bottom lines look worse. The bubbles look bigger and even than they were back then, you know. So, but I think a lot of that is to do with living in this changed climate, but still, still reading from the old copybook, still going yeah. by the old rules. Yeah. Again, there's a, you know, like you said, we're living in this old climate. There's a sort of irony in that, uh, you know, almost all the governments of the world are talking about, you know, how are we going to pay for this or that? And when they talk about how we're going to pay for this or that, it's always wages and social programs and things to make life better. When there are literally trillions of dollars internationally, which is a figure that's too big for anyone to actually comprehend. It's, we're talking about the, a trillion is a, a thousand billion dollars. 
It's a lot of money. There's literally trillions of dollars being wasted on speculative investment uh, globally that's going to just sort of implode with the next financial crisis. You could spend those same dollars on things that were actually productive. You could reforest certain areas. You could invest in, invest in renewable energy. You could invest in machinery to help reduce the workload for people, new social programs. The money is out there. Um, it's just being used in an incredibly short-sighted way. Again, coming back to, and I don't want to sound like a broken clock, but coming back to this point of trying to temporarily temporarily prop up profits for a very small group of people. And and to what end? To what end? What is, what you know, what is the vision? What's the end game? You know, where, what's the next stage? It's kind of like, you know, well, is there a plan? We'll get, to, we'll get to this point in, in this, with this system, this way of doing things, and then we'll go to this, you know, it's like, so what, as you say, these trillions unproductively resting in many cases, to what end? Because, you know, we don't live very long as creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, a lifetime is perilously short. Where is this going? So the thing is, the thing that I've become more and more sort of convinced of, especially recently, is that speaking in the long term, there really is no plan. I mean, there are occasionally people who have a sort of, you know, you think of the so-called like visionary entrepreneurs who have this sort of long-term idea of, okay, I'm going to invest in this, I'm going to open up a company that does this, and then we're going to the moon. But broadly speaking, in terms of like, uh, you know, governments trying to keep their economies stable, companies, these people are thinking on a quarter to quarter basis. Um, they know that there are problems. And I've had conversations with people who are absolutely poor in these industries who agree that there are absolutely huge problems. It's just that as an individual, there's not much they can do except play by the rules of the game that as it exists. You know, uh, every bank has to make money. Every hedge fund has to make money every quarter or else people are going to take their money out and put it somewhere else. The same goes for every company. Investors will take their money out if that company is not making money every single quarter. And it doesn't matter if the company is making money by doing things that are illegal or trying to juke their stats. That's what they have to do because those are the incentives of the system. So it's not just a question of individual greed and, and sort of, you know, evil in the world, which does absolutely exist. It's a question of having a system that has the right kind of incentives um, and having a system that empowers ordinary people to actually have some control over their own destinies. Yeah, so it's like a load of people sitting around. It's like the rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic in a way, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's kind of like mm-hmm. as long as the orchestra is still playing, you know, we'll keep on sort of opening bottles of champagne and we can see that the ship's listing. But, uh, you mm-hmm. know, by the time it goes over, we probably won't be here. And it's um, so it's almost like people we're collectively behaving in this way. And uh, there's a few people shouting fire, fire, or, you know, abandoned ship, or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but everyone's still just performing their role, you know, within this. Uh, we don't yet have that tipping point that you referred to. Maybe you should say something about what that might look like. You know, you were talking about the underlying situation with the global financial system. And mm-hmm. I- I've been listening to a lot of, how shall we say, alternative uh, economic yeah, uh, financial thinkers over the years. And I've been hearing about the sort of system blow up, whether it is actually as dramatic as that, but there's mm-hmm. an unraveling, a profound change. I've been hearing about it for a very long time. Yeah. And it's not that you stop listening, you know, you keep watching developments and you keep looking at the situation and seeing, and things are mm-hmm. changing, there's no question about it. But I'm just wondering what sort of changes you might imagine that would especially to people listening to this people watching watching tv at home uh that they Mm -hmm. might actually notice oh wow something's actually changed because the trend of course within the system is if there is a substantial change is forced upon us and you can see this with Mm -hmm. with, uh, the climate 
that we like to take things as slowly as possible and wait to the very last, yeah. the very last minute before taking any action. Yeah. So talking about the financial system, I think a lot of us were kind of shell-shocked from 2008, and especially because how weak the recovery was and how bad the crisis was that, you know, we have a tendency to see crises. Like I myself, I, you know, I looked at some of the stuff that was going on in 2016 and I was like, all right, this is it. Um, so of course, take even, you know, alternative economists, take everything we say with a grain of salt, do your own research and do your own thinking about it. That said, um, what's going on right now in a lot of the developed economies where, again, the expected profits from making new investments are pretty low, especially in Europe uh, and Japan, is there's a slow now slowdown heading towards what could be a recession. Um, the same is happening in China, which is a big issue because China basically was the main economy pumping up the world since the 2008 crisis. But what's happening in the financial system is, is really, again, it's very similar to 2008 where you have a big buildup in unsustainable debts that aren't going to be paid off um, with future money. So what you're going to see, and I think these things actually take a little bit longer to play out usually, although they've been playing out faster and faster with each subsequent crisis, they take a little longer to play out than you might think. So like if you think about the 2008 crisis, um, stuff started sort of bubbling to the top in 2007. And you had some first failures of different hedge funds and lenders in 2007, but it took until 2008 proper for things to really sort of start plummeting. Um, what it's going to look like is you'll start hearing about stress in shadow banking, which is basically a really unregulated group of people who have been doing a lot of really shady lending, much like prior to 2008, but this time to heavily indebted corporations. You'll hear about some corporations that are heavily indebted and have big loans going under. Uh, and then there's going to be a gradually rising sort of worry in the financial system about, okay, we have all these debts, what's going to happen? Eventually, when that leads to a fire sale, that's when you're going to see the actual crisis hit. And the thing, the thing about this time that's so different is that governments have a lot less of their normal tools that they would use uh, to sort of address a recession. So... Usually central banks will lower interest rates to encourage banks to make new loans and, and restart the economy. Interest rates in Europe are already negative. Um, interest rates are really like already negative in Japan. They're almost rock bottom in the US. So, so there's basically nowhere to go. Um, quantitative easing, which was used last time, I think will be used again in a very big way, but we've already seen sort of the limits of what that can do. So what I suspect is, is a lot like the bailouts last time, which were sort of based on the public stepping in and sort of taking over the losses of these private institutions. I think you're going to see governments do this in a very big way with a lot of these failing corporations. Uh, basically, you're going to see central banks and governments take over this toxic debt and say, look, we'll pay it in order to keep the financial system afloat. And this could look like sort of like really arcane stuff that central banks are doing that, you know, it's kind of hard to understand for an ordinary person. Or it could look like just straight up nationalizations and stuff, governments taking over failing companies, pumping public money into them, and eventually reprivatizing them. But I think especially in Europe, and this is something to to be sort of wary of, um, there's gonna be a lot of a lot of issues and there are sort of well, for one thing, I mean, perhaps the worst, uh, the most vulnerable banks in the world in terms of major banks are in Europe right now. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how, 
uh, governments and central banks will be able to respond to this because there is a potentially very, very serious systemic issue brewing. So, for instance, like European banks are one of the main lenders to these sort of unprofitable corporations based in the U.S. because the, the investment environment in Europe has been so bad. Well, one of the big issues um, in 2007-2008 was t- the potential and then the actual incidence of this financialized economy mm-hmm. doing damage to the real economy of stuff and things and, yeah. pe- uh, and, and people. I just wonder, it's like people were so incensed last time, ordinary people, that a yeah. lot of these uh, you know, banks and other financial institutions just were, you know, were bailed out at their expense, essentially. But mm-hmm. in future, what will it take for a government or a bank or whatever it happens to be to just say, no, you know, this is money owed to who by who or money lost that doesn't doesn't never existed i doesn't have any relation to anything in the real world mm-hmm. uh, so no we're just going to we're just going to reset this to zero we're not going to yeah we're not going to take from the real world cause devastation there in order to rebalance something on a computer screen so i think the thing that's interesting is i think there's less of a i think you're absolutely right in that you know, most of most of the money that's flowing around in the global economy is, is completely, it's hypothetical money that exists on a computer screen. 90% of it is like this. And money can literally be printed into thin air by the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank. So there is a certain degree, to an ex- a, a certain extent to which these things are purely hypothetical and there's no reason to bleed ourselves of them. But there are also the things that are keeping the capitalist economy going. So when I talk about like cheap credit and these unprofitable companies, I'm not talking about companies people have never heard of. Um, Uber is one of the companies that is 100% reliant on cheap credit. Uh, many of the famous tech startups that you've heard of are bleeding cash every quarter, require this money to keep running. Big car companies like Ford and General Motors, likewise in a recession, could easily go bankrupt again. Um, governments like Italy and Spain, are Italy especially, is a significant bankruptcy risk. I think right now what you're seeing in Argentina could be repeated in many other places around the world. Um, it's what I'm trying to say altogether is that as long as you have a government that requires a private financial system to operate in order to move the economy, which is essentially any capitalist economy, it's not going to happen. They're not going to let these institutions fail unless they're absolutely forced to by a mass movement of people proposing a different alternative and willing to back that up with a significant amount of unrest. So if you look, I don't, I don't know how many of your listeners have had a chance I've been surprised actually at how little reporting there's been, but if you guys go ahead and look at sort of what's been going on in Chile and Lebanon, um, what's going on there is sort of a dry run of what uh, the same sort of like economic problems and social unrest that a lot of people are going to be seeing uh, in the rest of the world, probably not that long from now. People there are protesting about uh, insane corruption and insane inequality in these countries um, being made worse by the fact that their governments have massive debts that they've accumulated and they need to pay them off by sort of bleeding working people. Um, and while you've seen this sort of like amazing and very inspiring outpouring of, of social unrest, like in Chile, people are, are not just sort of fighting to try to win back a, a, a decent way of life, but they're also starting to sort of build these councils. I heard from an activist the other day down in Chile who's talking about how neighborhoods are sort of coming together and, and talking about not just organizing protests, but organizing, you know, how are we going to live day to day? 
and sort of experimenting with a new way of doing things um, socially and politically, I, I think people should sort of look at these things as an example of, okay, here's what happens when the sort of crisis that these early indicators, like these canaries in the coal mine are facing right now, this is sort of what it, it could potentially look like uh, here. Okay, yes, well, you've you brought a couple of things together there which I want to ask you about, and mm-hmm. that is protest, because we're seeing it increasing. I mean, look what's happening in Hong Kong at the minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, not unrelated to economics by any means. Yes, there's political freedoms and what have you. Mm-hmm. Extinction Rebellion movement. So the two related things are this protest with regard to the economy, yes, and the direction yeah. the direction of political travel in many parts of the world, uh, yeah. but also climate and then resources as well, because that's something that uh, conventional economics is quite often detached from, which is like what we physically have available to us on the planet, because a lot of the potential that you talk about, you know, a positive potential for the future, still we still have to work with the resources we have on the planet. Yeah. You know, we can't, economics can't dream up uh, rare earth metals or oil or anything else. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're living in this world right now where there's, you know, we're going into potentially a period of a lot of economic uncertainty and political unrest. And we also have this very fundamental thing that's looming over everyone's heads, which is that we have a decreasing amount of time to change our way of life. And most importantly, our way of producing things um, that will allow us to keep living on a planet that we are able to recognize, you know, a few decades hence. Um, there's a lot of pressure being placed on people. And I think it's really, you know, it's obvious that there's going to be a lot of protest and a lot of unrest. And that's, I think protest is good. Um, but I think when you look at some of the protest movements that have happened over the past few years and and that are happening now, even in places like Chile or Lebanon, where you're like, wow, this, this, you have millions of people on the streets every day. You know, this is very much what a revolution could look like. I think we as ordinary people need to take that sort of next step from, we've already sort of taken the first step and say, okay, we're not going to be quiet anymore. We're going to go and be willing to go out in the street and, and fight for our rights and what we deserve. But we need to take a sort of more serious step and say, okay, how are we going to organize ourselves so that we can actually run things on the ground on a day-to-day basis? You know, if we need to distribute resources in a crisis, if we need to ensure that people are safe, similarly in a crisis, if we need to take over essentially governing the economy and the, the politics of our society, how can we do this in a way that's democratic, that allows people to participate and that's effective? Um, that, I think, is really the big limit as where we're sort of at now as people who are thinking about making social change is that we're able to really sort of jam up the system when we want to and when people get really pissed off, you know, we can shut down an economy pretty well. That's one thing that we've all sort of learned to do from the past decade. But we also need to know how to, okay, once you've shut down the economy, how do you get it going again? How do you rebuild it and retool it in a way that can allow us to build a world that's actually sustainable and that's actually working for the vast majority of people? If we do that organizing, I think you're going to see a lot of very positive social change over the next decade. And if we don't, I think things could look pretty grim. Well, conventional capitalism is essentially predicated on um, endless growth, you know, because that, it's just yeah. that's one of the, the things that's required uh, to keep it churning. Now, growth figures are in the toilet, basically. I keep an eye on these things. And again, there's a lot of, oh, we don't understand why this, you know, if we've got 0.1% growth and um, I was just reading an article a couple of days ago about uh, economic growth figures here in the UK, and the mm-hmm. the journalist was just, you know, completely dumbfounded by, uh, you know, what could possibly explain this. 
and, mm-hmm. and there's everything's starting to get very relative, you know. So, oh, well, not 0.02% growth is twice, not 0.01% growth, you know. So growth has doubled or whatever it happens to be. And, yeah. Uh, you've got these other linguistic absurdities like negative growth. But I'm just wondering, in terms of that, in a, a future, not just abstract economy, but real economy, real world yeah. of less and, and fewer, the growth that you see in, uh, in, in uh, on spreadsheets also mm-hmm. reaches out into growth in ever more stuff and ever more people, yeah. ever more people as well. Some sort of post-capitalist society necessarily, I think, okay, give me your view on this, mm-hmm. me- means kind of less and fewer and i don't i'm not in, implying anything inherently negative mm-hmm. in those things it's just kind of it feels like a like a reality it doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't mean it's not better but mm-hmm. there's there's going to be less of certain things and fewer of certain things I, I think it's i think the issue is there's a sort of like disconnect between you know when we talk about economic figures like economic growth it's a it's essentially a really abstract measure of the value of the things that are produced in an economy um the the transformation to a post-capitalist society is essentially like a complete paradigm shift. Now, the way that you make as much money as possible is you produce a lot of stuff, mark it up as much as you can, produce it with as cheap labor as you possibly can, um, and make sure that the stuff goes obsolete and is breakable so that people buy as much of it as they possibly need to buy. Um, there's a lot of inefficiencies that are baked into the system. If we had a different kind of society where we're producing stuff for people's needs, you wouldn't have new refrigerators that break in two years. Um, you would have things that kind of looked in a way that's kind of nostalgic as sort of, you know, this 1950s world where your, your appliance just keeps working and working and working. That's the kind of thing that we'd want. And yeah, it does mean doing, uh, doing with a lot less of certain things like cheap, disposable plastic packaging. I mean, that, that's not, in no world is that sustainable to continue operating like that. You need things to be biodegradable and recyclable if they're being consumed. And yeah, it means, you know, for a while we'd be eating less beef and and less kinds of meat that are simply not sustainable at the level that we're eating them now. But it also means for the vast majority of people, I think still a broad increase in living standards because so much of our life, especially in the developed world where, you know, you have some material comforts, but you're placed under an extreme amount of stress just to be able to sort of get by uh, and scrape by. No longer having to worry about the stress of, okay, how am I going to deal with my health care? You know, I could lose my job next week. I have no savings. I have no guarantees of a pension. And this is, varies from country to country, but all of that stress would sort of be, be gone. And as much as you can sort of gather happiness and fulfillment out of these sort of basic economic facts, I think a post-capitalist society could provide a lot. Um, but no, I, I absolutely agree that there's going to be it's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be change. And that's okay. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about the present system that's lauded as being, you know, amazing and wonderful. But, you know, throwing out an iPhone every couple of years just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for our species over the long run. And we can do better. Yeah, your point about iPhones there is very opposite. I mean, I would much rather work fewer hours, have more time to myself, and not have a new fridge every two years because a lot of what the system requires what it demands in terms of churn you know of, of products and mm-hmm. as you say you know these, these goods you know that, that can't be repaired and that they break after a couple of years that 
churning through all of this is what the system currently demands to keep going. But that's dressed up as progress and choice for us, isn't it? You know, sort of like, oh, well, you know, why would you want to still be using the same, uh, you know, washing machine that you had 25 years ago? You know, you get the new thing. And of course, there are developments and improvements in technology, but there are certain dimensions of life and certain aspects of, of the you know, the mundane realities that really we'd rather just took care of themselves. Um, I've got a toaster. I always like to use this example. It cost about 10 times more than the cheapest toaster I could get. So let's say it was £5 you can get a basic toaster for if you walk into a supermarket here in the UK. I, yeah. I paid £50 for this toaster in 2004. Right, mm. okay. Some of the listeners probably weren't born then. <laughs> it still looks good, it works perfectly, and it delivers divine toast every time. Now, I know which I prefer. I don't want to have to think about buying a new bloody toaster. I've got better things to do with my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, divine toast every time to me is socialism. That's what I'm <laughs> that's what I'm fighting for. No, I really I really do think that you know, there it's it's a sort of change. It's it's going to be hard to say it's not everything's going to be better, it's not everything's going to be worse. But yeah, just the basics of expecting waste and an increase of cheap crap every year, that's not going to work in any system. And it's certainly not going to work, I think, if ordinary people get our hands on the wheel and decide to start making changes in our society. Well, it's interesting that you just used the word socialism there because I can, I can mm. hear, I can hear the sound of people being triggered. And yeah. we, we have a lot of definitions that we use and a lot of uh, categories mm. that we employ around particularly you know, politics and social mm -hmm. systems. And I yeah. think that a lot of the changes coming down the line uh, that are going to be forced on us, some of which we'll be able to choose, some of which we won't, mm -hmm. we don't need to be tied down to red and blue systems of thinking about what mm -hmm. these things are, about labeling them as certain things. I don't think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. I think... Personally, I don't mind, but that's just sort of because of the background that I come from. But at the same time, I think, you know, similarly, if you look at a lot of the sort of protests and uprisings that are happen happening now, you see exactly that same thing where people are out there, they're fighting for something that to them is broadly about their dignity and their rights, but they don't feel a need to sort of categorize it as being like, oh, we're fighting for socialism or we're fighting for this or that. Um, and I think that's probably going to be the case going forward, too. Um I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with different kinds of labels, and, and that's okay. Uh, as long as people are materially fighting for what is, in effect, the same thing, which is, to me, uh, a world where ordinary people and, and working people are in charge and, and making decisions that will create a just and sustainable and free society, um, that's good. And I don't care whether people call it socialism or whatever they call it. In terms of signs that, that we might all of us be seeing in our everyday lives of mm. change, you know, whether we recognize these signs as what they really are signifying, uh, two things that I uh, particularly come to my attention are a resurgence in our artisanal production and localized production. And yeah. also certainly in the city I live in, the hollowing out of the high street in terms of vacant stores, you know, so the, yeah. high, the high street becoming just what I mentioned earlier, things you cannot do online, coffee shops, hair salons, mm -hmm. uh, blah, blah, blah. So those are two of the things that I notice most. What, what do you, uh, in your life, if you're walking down the street or going about your daily business, what makes you go, ah, ha, you know, sign of change? Um, what I've been seeing, I, I live in New York right now. And, and like, just like you said, actually the exact same thing is happening with, uh, 
like a lot of these store spaces in New York, even up to the most expensive luxury stores, a lot of these places are suffering. But actually what I see now, and, and partially because of having recently done like a sort of deep dive into all of this finance stuff, is I go around and I see the names of many, many companies that employ many, many people that are on my list of massively indebted companies that aren't making any money that are going to fail when the next recession comes. And you look around and you see, you know, the economy is sort of built on the idea that these things will be stable and they'll be around for years to come. And, and you know, people are banking their livelihoods on that. Uh, your ordinary person who works there or shops at that place doesn't know about the financial stress that this place is under. Um, and when you walk through parts of Manhattan or parts of downtown Brooklyn, um, those names are everywhere. So what I see is sort of a, a sort of brewing reckoning. And, and what I'm most curious about is, okay, if, if things sort of play out in a way that's similar to what I expect, how are people going to react? Um, and I, I don't know. I guess we'll see. It depends on, on how much faith we put in, in people and on our neighbors and friends. Final point, Ben. Well, yeah, mm. there are going to be losers and winners going forward. I think based on what I see happening out there, I think overall things are probably going to get worse before they get better, depending on mm. who you are and your circumstances. But I think really there's no going back and there's nowhere to run. And despite that aforementioned end of history kind of delusion that mm-hmm. our history as a species is of like constant change and we have these periods of stability and because we have such short lifetimes and we think that you know the past was all about upheaval and change and where we are now where we're going is about stability and mm-hmm. you are talking about you know the promise of a system with the greater fairness and stability that's true but whatever it is we move into that too will change in time as well. Yeah. So it's just a question of uh, balance. But, you know, there is no, this is not going to play out like the movie Elysium, I don't think. There's not going to be any off-world utopia for so-called elites to run to and the, le- the rest of us left here in the dirt. I think that's, that's, that's not going to play out like that. So I think how we approach this um, collectively, it will certainly help determine how better the pill is and how many losers and winners there are. One thing is sure, things as they have been cannot be sustained. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think just like you said, I mean, in a way, uh, I, I see it as a sort of good thing, especially for some of the listeners who are, you know, thinking about what their role is in the world. Look, hi- history is back on, you know, any we're, we're entering a, a time frame where real sweeping change is going to be a possibility and, and people who are listening are going to play a role in that change. Um, that's an exciting thing as much as it's also kind of frightening. Um, but I think it's a good thing. It means that we together, and not just as a single generation, but of all of the different generations that are on this planet right now, have a real opportunity um, to do something that's very, very important for our species and, and make an important change that will let us keep progressing in the future. You know, we, we if we get to what we think is a paradise now, you know, where we don't have to worry about these economic issues, there's still going to be a lot of big questions like you talked about, like, okay, what... It, what kinds of gene editing are okay? Um, stuff that we, it's hard to sort of grapple with right now. But I think getting there and getting to the place where we can sort of start dealing with those like kind of higher level questions requires us to make our economy and our world basically sustainable and basically functional. And I'm hoping that we'll end up there, but we'll see. 
For me personally, I, as you say, I do think there are these much bigger questions that I'd much rather spend my time and mental energy on. I'd like to get to those as quickly as possible. Today, Ben, we've been talking about uh, your book, The Coming Revolution, Capitalism in the 21st Century. Now, that's widely available, easily uh, found anywhere. Tell listeners uh, anything else you'd like to share. And I, I know you've got a Twitter feed. I couldn't find any other social media for your website. Have you got anything else out there? Yeah, so I, I mostly am on Twitter, um, to be honest with the listeners. It's it's currently locked. If you follow me, I'll, I'll let you in, but it's currently locked because I'm trying to get a, a better job. And, you know, sometimes employers can, can balk a little bit when you... And you start talking a big game on the internet. Uh, I don't do a lot of other social media, but I do have a blog. Uh, it's called Fragments. Uh, it's just a Word, WordPress blog. I don't publish stuff there that often, but I occasionally do. Um, you can also see my writing sometimes at Roar Magazine um, and on other forums. But yeah, hit me up on Twitter. Um, if people want to talk about stuff, I'm available. And uh, good luck to everyone with the future. Splendid. Okay, well, once again, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. All right, thank you. Thank you.